what is easy for you is not necessarily what is easy for me. We have different ways of cooking, and every person that walks into the kitchen brings their own personality, their own anxieties into the into the equation. So we try to break down the book to an acronym using the word simple. And every recipe in a book in the book would be simple in one or more ways according to this acronym. You're listening to the Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. Today on the show, we have Yotam Odalengi, the London-based restaurateur and prolific cookbook author behind best-selling books like Plenty, Sweet, and Simple, his new book. Later on, Matt will be talking with Sarah Gavigan, author of a cool new cookbook, Ramen Otaku, Mastering Ramen at Home. But Matt, you got to hang out with Yotam and talk about cauliflower, among other things. Oh boy, Anna, we talked about cauliflower. We talked about cauliflower rice. Is it big in London? It's not as big in London, but it's pretty big. We also talked about roasting the whole head of cauliflower, which is a great meat substitute, and he's got a cool new recipe in his book. We also talk about fritters, how he loves fritters, as do I, and how there's like five cool fritter recipes in the book. His new book is all about simple recipes. How simple are we talking here? Like an hour, two hours? We breaks it down. It's it's actually very simple. All the recipes are around a page, and he has a really cool way to organize the recipes, as you'll as you'll discuss. We also talk about Israel, um, which is a topic I like to talk about with a lot of our guests. Um, we talk about what's happening in Israel, in Tel Aviv, and Jerusalem, but outside those major cities, and it's a really enlightening conversation. Here's Matt talking to Yotam Odalengi. Yotam Odalengi, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you. I love having you here. I'm very happy to be here. Let's talk. We have a lot to cover because I definitely <laughs> want to get to Israel, but we'll get to that later. I okay. Think I want to talk about this new book. So. Yeah, sure. Your your recipe development process, I, I feel like it's a little Warhol factory, a little Bon Appetit test kitchen. It's very collaborative. It's very cool. How does that work? Yeah, well, I thank, thank you. I mean, yes, it is quite collaborative and it is kind of cool. Uh, so I, I may, I'll just take you back a little bit if, up until about, you know, eight years ago. I used to do all the recipe testing at home. And I had a small kitchen, and I used to go shopping, buy the foods, prepare it, put it together, write notes, send it off. And it was very solitary and very boring. So, And at some point, I also ran out of ideas, and I thought, like, I can't carry on like that. I've done a cookbook plenty, and I've written you know countless recipes, but it's just not for me. I, I'm not a solitary person. So I set up a test kitchen that was very small at the beginning. It's in North London under one, one of those uh, railway arches. Uh, it was just myself and one more person testing recipes, and it grew and grew. Now there's three or four of us at any given moment. Oh yeah! And uh, so we have a meeting once every couple of weeks, and we tr- talk about lots of ideas. You know, summer roasts or or grainy salads or wow. a three course meal for after Christmas or whatever. It, does, it doesn't really matter because the conversation just takes us into certain places, and each person brings their own set of ideas. Yeah, tell me what are what are some of those uh ideas that are coming out? Let's talk about green salad. So is it like one one 
grain you should be using, like you should be using quinoa versus this or that? How, do, how does that work? No, it, well, there's actually no set, there's no agenda. We don't want to push any particular you know story or narrative. It's just about what we love to eat. So someone would say, oh, I went to another, the other night. I had a great like. Uh, I went to Albuquerque Elementary yesterday with uh, with the publicist Sandy, and we had this wonderful salad of of you know better leaves, Castle Franco, Radicchio, and you know a couple of others. And I thought like, oh my, that's really nice. Maybe I I can do something with bitter leaves. I haven't done something for a while, which is actually a lie because I did quite recently. But yeah, I'm just but, giving but it a, you yeah, get yeah. an example of like you're really informed and, by and, dining out. Yeah, you dine out and you have a conversation, and someone else had a Chinese f- f- dish the other day. And that kind of informs it. And she would say, oh, you know, my, one of my colleagues said, oh, maybe we, we should do some kind of nice porky thing inside our leafy salad. And then so these conversation uh, leads to dishes and we taste them and we test them and we taste them and we test them. And until we're happy, and then it's uh, the recipe is kind of ready to be released. But you have a very rigorous testing process, yes. more so. Very rigorous, because at another. the very end, when we're really happy with the dish, then we send it off to uh, uh, Claudine. Uh, she lives in Wales, which is quite a few thousand, mi- you know, hundred miles away from London. And she tests the recipes on her poor family. So she's <laughs> got a husband and kids and 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 and. Uh, parents-in-law and they all try the food and then she sends me a note a report saying yes i really liked it but my father-in-law thought it was too spicy Uh, and it didn't take four minutes to brown it actually took six or eight and i couldn't for the life of me get halva in the shopping mall in uh, in 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 wales you know so these kind of things so she's kind of your tester to make sure that these recipes actually work outside of a cosmopolitan center i mean is she in cardiff or is she like in the she's country? actually outside cardiff she's a yeah. good half hour outside cardiff so it, it's not, not only that outside a cosmopolitan setting but also in a very particular domestic setting so t- sometimes she gets yeah. something like 250 grams of ricotta she says that's really annoying because there's 270 <laughs> grams in the pack so I go, oh, yeah, actually, I didn't think of that. So, you yeah. know, those little things are really important for yeah. for home cooks. And I really listen to what she has to say. And that's why your books and your, your column is so cookable. Like everyone wants to make these recipes and share them. And I think that's a big credit to you. Thank you. I wanted to know, um, with um, this in mind of, of cooking these recipes anywhere, um, do you feel it's a little bit easier these days to find these, quote, unquote, non-Western ingredients, the Middle Eastern ingredients, Asian ingredients? Oh, yeah, so much easier. I mean, because I've got a bit of perspective. I'm, you know, I've been operating as a chef and a recipe writer, as a recipe writer, I'd say the best part of 10 years. And I've seen lots of changes. So first of all, as we all know, online shopping is exploding. So anything that you don't have nearby, you can just order and you get it. And there's more and more online retailers that are very specific to a niche or a need so you know you can get Middle Eastern from one one, one retailer. You can get your, your weird kit from someone else, and you can get your Asians for a third person. And, and it's all you know relatively cheap. It's and easy cheap, to get. and like if you don't like the fish sauce that you got from the sea retailer, and it was seven dollars, yeah. you can try again. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. It's so so this is this kind of thing that I think has really opened up people's larders. You know, all of a sudden you can really easily get those things. You don't need to schlep all the way to you know, especially if you're not in the middle of a of a of a buzzing city. Then and then you can just order it. So that's a great thing. But also the other thing that I've, I've, I've realized is that it's very easy to turn something exotic to something mundane. You know, like a mozzarella in the 60s was just not exi- non-existent, and now it's kind of on every supermarket shelf across the land. So to 
past the line from exotic to mainstream pedestrian. or bad pedestrian is just yeah. it's just very easy. So uh, I've seen in the last 10 years, uh, you know, every supermarket stocks Zatar. I love that. And Harissa. some of them, and yeah, and Harissa, some of them are. Not the best, but we can talk about we that. We can talk about Zatar. Yeah, we, we talked they're, last not, time. they're not really Zatar in my books, but that's a different story. But, I mean, the intention is there, yeah. and people are getting to know the good ones. So, yeah, definitely this is happening, and it's a, a, great, a great thing. And in your new book, Simple, I, I love that you break the larder down into, like, 12 ingredients. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it's, it's done in cookbooks, and it's not really applied to the recipes, but you really do apply it. Let me let us know yeah. a couple of the rest of the ingredients. Yeah, there. so in this book, in simple, um, I tried to f- um, to narrow down the number of exotic, you know, what is perceived to be exotic ingredients to ten. So ten really effective r- r- ingredients that inject a lot of flavor into a dish. Because when you talk about simple cooking, normally you don't want to have a a really long. ingredient list. So in order to achieve that kind of intensity of flavor, you want to have an ingredient that does a lot of that work for you. So one of the ingredients that I use quite a lot in this book is black garlic. Black garlic is just normal garlic that's been aged over a couple of weeks. Rotting garlic. Yes. Well, it's it's not as bad as it sounds. Yeah, no, it sounds great. (laughs) It's cooked in a very low temperature for a very long time. So it goes completely black. It loses it loses its acrid, intense flavor, but it goes almost like licorice, molasses in sea in flavor, and it's really affected effective in marinades, thinly sliced into salads. You don't have it just on its own; it's it's quite sweet, but when you mix it with other things, it's absolutely fantastic. I've got um, a recipe for Brussels sprouts for with tahini and black garlic. Oh, that's so good! It's a killer. It's a great thing for you know for for this holiday season. Um, that's one of them. Preserved lemons is another one. Again, you take something as simple as a lemon and let it kind of age. So you get all those layers of flavors and without cooking because you just bring it in at the very end or even at the beginning and you get layers of flavor. So, yeah, those are some of the yeah. ingredients, but there's eight more. There's a lot. I mean, it's, it's, I mean there's a, it's pared down in a cool way. Um, and the recipes really do interact well with the larder, so I like that. Let's talk about fritters. I feel like you have this obsession with fritters in a way that's so cool. You have it throughout the book. Yeah, throughout the book and throughout my life. So, uh, <laughs> why, why are you so into cooking fritters? And I well, agree, they're pretty great. Well, I think the, the great thing about fritter, it, fritters in general, well, fried things are just great. Uh, but fritters are, uh, you take a few of your fra- favorite ingredients, you put them together and you bind them with something, egg or flour or, whatever, or both or... And you just make little little balls of wonder and 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 you fry them, and you get something so delicious, so it's kind of warm and crispy on the outside, soft and slightly less hot on the inside and so you get all these all these uh, contrasts and so in this particular book, I've got like prawn and craw- and and corn fritters so good, so you've got they've got some chili sauce inside, and you fr- you fry them, and the corn just kind of on the outside. Uh, almost like fries or burns a bit, so you got it pops, and same happens to the prawns. It's really good, and I've got these really epically delicious Iranian herb fritters that have got lots of you know dill, coriander, mint, and uh, and some barberries, which are another one of my ten ingredients. Are little, they're a bit like tiny cranberries. They're sweet and sour, uh, and those are thrown in. And when you fry those little herby fritters, uh, you get like a 
intensely delicious herb pancake, which is just so good. Yeah, and they're really fun to cook too because it's just like when you're frying these little pockets of of deliciousness, it's just like a fun thing to do. Yeah, it is a fun thing to do. It's one of the easiest way to do to cook, yeah. to cook fritters as well because uh, there's not. Much, I mean, it's it's hot oil, but there's it's very difficult to to get it wrong. You know, it's not like overcooking <laughs> a fish or you know those. Well, the kind first of, one is usually kind of messy. Yeah, right? we all know the first the, pancake goes into the, goes the, to the dog. Gives yeah, the dog gets yeah. Tell me, okay, in the States, we have this thing that's happening with cauliflower. It's called mm-hmm. cauliflower rice. Yeah. <laughs> it's basically heads of cauliflower that's been pulverized, put into packets and sold at Whole Foods, Trader Joe's. Yeah. There's like shortages. Cauliflower farmers are, farmers are making a ton of money. Is this happening throughout the UK and Europe? I think everything that happens uh, in the world goes a bit more extreme, happens a bit more extremely <laughs> and loudly in the States. So uh, we don't have that ma- madness, but there's a lot of people, a lot of people using cauliflower as a substitute for not only rice, but also couscous. We call it cauliflower mm-hmm. couscous. It all depends on which bit of the grater you use, yeah, whether you yeah. want it to make it How l- fine and yeah, yeah, similar heavily. to rice, similar to couscous, similar to, to giant couscous or, or uh, you know, it's or bulgur. Because uh, a lot of people use it also as, as when you make tabbouleh, uh, uh. Middle Eastern parsley salad. It has uh, so it's got uh, lots of chopped parsley, lemon juice, uh, olive oil, uh. some sweet soy, and some bulgur wheat. So some a lot of people replace that with with grated cauliflower. Uh, so yeah, the madness is there. And I guess if you want to eat less carbs, you eat cauliflower. And I've always loved cauliflowers. And I've, in this book in particular, I've got. I think three or four cauliflower recipes the, that I absolutely adore. The one that really stuck out to me is the whole head cauliflower. Yeah. And that's just such a cool recipe where you can share it with your friends. Mm. I, I buy that. Like you're like you're saying, like, why don't you put the cauliflower on the table at the beginning of the meal? I thought about it for a second and discussed it with my colleague. We were like, maybe this doesn't make sense. But then she was like, No, I would do that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really nice to to do something which is feels very wholesome and informal. So I take a whole head of celery root and a whole head head of cauliflower and I just roast them for a very long time. And you will people will discover that when you roast vegetables, whether cabbages or or or, or root vegetables or cauliflowers, etc., you really get this wonderful in-depth caramelization that happens over time that you can't achieve when you just cook something quickly. And when you get it, it's a really great, wonderful base to carry out to carry on other flavors. So you get you can so for instance with the cauliflower or the celery root, you can use a, a, you know, a dollop of creme fraiche, a sprinkle of parsley, and a grating of lemon zest, and you've got a whole wonderful, delicious thing to stand at the middle of your table. You don't need a main course, or you can make a quick salsa with capers and dill, and you know, like a salsa verde or pesto. I mean, the, so the vegetable essentially turns into what traditionally would be the meat. Yeah, it's like because it's a carrier. It's got, it's had a lot of cooking. Mm-hmm. It's got beautiful flavors, and it just sits there in the it sits middle. Sits there and is gorgeous. Yeah. Um, have you been to Dock in Tel Aviv? Have you heard their whole kohlrabi? There's this restaurant, Dock, mm. D-O-K. You ever heard of that place? They have this big... No, I haven't. I've, I haven't heard. The, the whole kohlrabi. Yeah, they do a whole kohlrabi. It's delicious. It's I have, so delicious. I have been known to cook a whole kohlrabi myself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's great. We'll get to Tel Aviv. I have a few more questions about the book. I mean... Let's. I love the four-step Roman-style gnocchi dish. Oh, it looks. It's how can you do gnocchi in like four steps? Well, first of all, I think most people don't know this kind of gnocchi because uh-huh. uh, gnocchi, as it as you would probably encounter it, is potato-based, and uh, gnocchi in general in Italian means a dumpling. So, but this particular one, which is gnocchi alla romana, is made out of semolina. So you take semolina and you cook it like 
like oatmeal in a pot with some liquid milk, butter, and nutmeg, and you add your cheese. And essentially, when it's ready, you spread it out on the tray until it sets. Yes. And then you cut circles and... Um, and then you grill them with more cheese. And then when the cheese melts, you want to die because it <laughs> so is good. so good and so delicious. And there's nothing underneath it to offer resistance. So you, have, you, you eat these little pouches of air and cheese, and it's so good. And this is a dish my grandmother, who's from Italy, used to cook. And, and so it's, one of the, it's the dish that's probably closest to my heart in this book because I love it so much and because I had it growing up. So, yeah, this is really pure heaven food. And it really does call back to the title Simple. And it's this, like, mm. noble shit's concept. Like, it really is simple because simple yeah, is not always I, I the just, case. I want to talk a little bit about what simple is in my mind, what simple cooking is, because many books uh, have the title Simple or Easy, uh, but I'm not sure a lot of people have given thought to what that, that means, simple or easy cooking. It's and And for me, after speaking to a lot of people... I figured out that it's not so much about how easy or how difficult the recipe is per se, because what is easy for you is not necessarily what is easy for me. We have different ways of cooking, and every person that walks into the kitchen brings their own personality, their own um, anxieties into the into the equation. So we tried to break down the book to an acronym using the word simple. And every recipe in a book in the book would be simple in one or more ways according to this acronym. So the S stands for short on time. So those are recipes that uh, take less than half an hour to cook. If you're that kind of person that likes to cook a meal or a dish in half an hour, that's for you. And then, you timed them out. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, we did. Uh, the I stands for ingredients, 10 or less. The M stands for make, make ahead. This is a great category for, you know, entertaining or for if you if you cook in the eve in the morning and want to eat in the evening those are the recipes that you could just cook and then put together or warm up at the last minute p is for pantry which is recipes like rice or couscous or bulgur or all those things from this pantry that you've established well not necessarily it's from things that you would have like you know hanging around in your in your pantry or the lurking at the bottom of the fridge like some herbs etc it's not when you go and have to buy whole fish or something very particular you can kind of put it together quite easily from stuff you'd have either at home or near you. The L is for lazy. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like most cooks at the end of a long easy Absolutely. day. You're lazy. You are lazy. And those and I find that those recipes are especially attractive because those res- are the recipes um, that you kind of don't make a lot of effort to you don't put a lot of effort to cook them and then they just cook themselves so stews and roasts you put everything together in a pot you leave it there you can go read a book for half an hour no not way more than half an hour two three hours and when you come back it's all ready for you and the e the last one is easier than you think and those are recipes that just sound terrifying, like a bread or an like ice cream or like the gnocchi, yeah. but actually are way easier than you think. So every recipe in this book will be easy in one or more ways. I love it. Did yeah. you, who came up with the simple idea? That exactly. is, uh, that's how we complicate simple, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, truly. <laughs> yeah, that was Tara, who is my co- one of my co-authors yeah. on the book. And she was very clever. She said, let's just try to see Signal to people whether that recipe suits them and how they cook it's cool i love it um i want to talk about israel yeah i I love i love talking about it with you because you've got such great insights Uh, what's just when was your last time there and you try to go a few times a year what's happening there in the food scene so i have fewer insights to israel 
now as I did before because I have two young kids, yeah. three and five. So when we go to Israel, they want to stay at home and I cook for them at home. So I've, I don't have the latest update about what's going on in Israel. But uh, so I was there probably about, I'd say, in some, at some point in the last eight, eight months. Oh, yeah. and, um, and I've been to Tel Aviv and I've eaten in <clears throat> a great restaurant in the center off Al- Allenby Street, which is it's called Santa Caterina. Okay, um, it's fantastic. It's I, I forget the name of the chef, but they do this kind of modern Israeli spread of deliciousness, and they have a pizza oven, so they do a lot of the grilling and the cooking go- comes oh. off that oven. That's uh, a current fla- favorite. And in Akko, which is on the coast, just further north, there is a great place. He's been around forever. It's called Uri Buri. And I don't know if you know him. I have but... written a profile about Uri. Ah, okay. You know all Good about guy, him. That's, yeah. that's not, that, he looks like Santa Claus. He's <laughs> and he doesn't talk like Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> no, he doesn't. <laughs> but he makes the best fish and, you know, everything that he does. That's, that's absolutely great. Um, in Jerusalem, there is a restaurant that I absolutely adore. It's called Mona. Yeah. Uh, have you heard of it? Heard of it. Yeah, yeah, it's from the people who set up Machne Yuda, which is a very famous restaurant by now with offshoots in London. And it's kind of a bit Italian, but in the scene of Jer- with the Jerusalem influences. Uh, I love that place. So, yeah, there's there's lots going on. And I also like that you point out Akko because I think a lot of uh, a lot of folks heading to Israel tend to stay in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem yeah. for food. But they talk about the Galilee and like, like oh. Sheva. There's like lots of interesting food things going on throughout the, the country. Yeah, throughout the country, Akko. If you go to if you go to Nazareth in the Galilee, you've got some really incredible hummus joints and Arabic restaurants in, that are just doing. Uh, there's a famous restaurant called Diana, which is people just you know go there as a, as on a regular basis. But uh, there's there's they are peppered throughout the north. Really, really good restaurants. Also Haifa, which is a mixed city, Arab Jewish. You've got really, really good restaurants there that kind of reflect that complexity. I heard there was from Mike Salmanov. We had him on the show. He said there's a really good Ashkenazi scene happening in Haifa. Ashkenazi yes, there food, is because yeah. Ashkenazi. There's a lot of Ashkenazi. People in or people of that descent yeah. in Haifa, but I haven't been to Haifa for years, so I'll, I'll ask Michael the next time I see yeah. him where, where I should it go. It was a great tip. I, I think was... Michael probably know more about Israeli food <laughs> than I do. I think you both come at it in different uh, ways. Yeah. I think you're both amazing, and, and I really thank you for sharing the story with the oh. world. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great. Pleasure. And um, let's just talk about travel in general. You travel all the yeah. time for your television series and for your column and for mm. books. What's just the last great trip you took for food? Uh, so the last, well, I always, wherever I travel, I try to find great food destinations. I, 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 I hate to think that I go somewhere which doesn't have great food. Uh, so, cause it feels like a, such a missed opportunity. Uh, so the very latest trip that I took was to Greece and I spent the, the summer on an island called Kea, K-E-A. It's not a very famous island. It's quite close to Athens. Uh, but it's a, it's got a great it's got it, well like the rest of the uh, uh, Greek islands it's got a great great coastline beautiful beaches and really really good food and it's not very varied you know in the summer you get like six ing- ingredients tomatoes courgettes uh, zucchinis uh, eggplants on- red onions uh, uh, peppers any everything you need to do to make a good Greek salad. 
but it's phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And there is uh, there is a little restaurant on the on the seafront, actually in the harbor. So on the on the port in the city where the where the where the ferry comes, there is a restaurant uh, run by a guy from Mykonos uh-huh. called. Rolando, Rolando, and he makes the best things out of zucchini. He's got the steamed zucchini with with uh, raw garlic and fresh oregano to die for. I so. love that idea of like, cooking with raw zucchini. Yeah, raw like, zucchini is the best. We thing. don't do that in the states. We we really try to boil the shit out of it. Uh, it's kind I, of what we do. I've in this book in in, in simple. I've got a, a recipe for a shaved zucchini salad. Oh, so good uh, with pecorino, and it is absolutely sensational. A bit of lemon. It's so good. I I actually this summer. Did more f- with zucchini raw than I did cook it, and when you're on a Greek island, all you get is is really just zucchini. So you yeah. have to be really ingen- you know inventive, inventive <laughs> yeah, it's with it. cooking. Yeah, yeah. I I wanted to wrap up and ask you about your own podcast. I, you launched it recently. I've, I've caught a few episodes. What are you trying to do with that? Because I think there's a lot of podcasts out there, but you seem to have a really unique angle. First of all, I'm trying to uh, drive you out of your job. <laughs> I know, right? Like, like the taste podcast is going to shut down because of your success. <laughs> no. You're on the charts. I see you on the charts. Am I really? I, see I, you. I, I, <laughs> I didn't know that. But um, no, so the, the idea with this podcast is be- with this book, Simple, I tried to, uh, try to understand a little bit how people cook in a way that is not stressful and is easy and with ease. And also with other parts of their life, how they conduct themselves in a way that is kind of a little bit easy. And it's very, I think it's very particular for this point in time where we live at this point in 2018. There's a lot of reason to be stressed. And, and it's quite good to find little niches and little places where you don't need to be stressed. So simple, Otolenghi Simple, the book, offers you how to do that with, with recipes. But those conversations that I have on my podcast, which are called Simple Pleasures, are where I try to figure with other people what they do to make themselves relax, how do they conduct their lives, what makes them laugh, what makes them cry. So just kind of really nice conversations to to lighten up things a little bit. And I've had a, an incredible series of guests. Yeah. I was like, I had Nigella Lawson mm-hmm. and Nadia Hussein, who's the winner of the British Bake Off a few, a few years ago. I had Michael Palin, who's a legend, Lin-Manuel Miranda. So I've had this kind of incredible group of people that all wanted to share their stories with me. And I was just sitting there and listening and <laughs> being very happy. Being happy. Who's your dream guest? Who do you want on? Oh, I think I've had all of them. I guess yeah. I've just had to have to have Michelle Obama and that. That's it. Yeah, well, that will happen, I'm sure. (laughs) Yodam, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. Here's Matt speaking with Sarah Gavigan. Sarah Gavigan, welcome to the Taste Podcast. I am so excited to be here. I'm excited to have you here. I need to give a big ex- disclosure at the top. I've known you for a while. We share a literary agent. Yep. I was fortunate enough to read an early draft of your proposal, and magic happened, and you the, the book is here two years later. Uh, just two years. <laughs> just two years. <laughs> I'm such a fan, but and where to begin? Um, what was your mission with this book? Uh, the book is Ramen Otaku. It's a book about ramen, but it's also about making ramen at home. Is that is that what it's about, or is there more to it? It's really about taking the mystery away from what it takes to make a bowl of ramen. I think that the as I've gone through this journey of learning how to cook professionally, 
it's made me appreciate being a home cook even more and the magic that lies inside of that. And, you know, ramen to me is a magical dish. There's literally nothing else like it that fulfills me physically and emotionally the way that that dish does. And so, you know, I think a lot of people have attempted to try and make it at home. And I feel like people deserve to be able to do it right. Absolutely. And let's just describe the word otaku. I think you just kind of paraphrased a little bit. It's magical. It's a dish you love. But what is an otaku exactly? So otaku is a a word that has just recently kind of taken a more positive tone. It was seen as a negative word in Japan for a long time. I think the original word actually means at home. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was like someone that stayed home and did nothing Mm -hmm. but play video games. And then that morphed into being otaku about anime and manga. And, of course, ramen always being present in those two things. It then transferred into ramen. So if you are otaku, then it usually means you're an absolute geek about ramen or anime. And that's Both. fair to describe you as a ramen geek. I'm definitely a geek and, I'll, and and a proud geek, always have been. I know. And let's go back to Los Angeles. Um, you lived there in the 90s. You lived there for over 20 years. And for anybody who's ever visited Los Angeles, it's the best city for Japanese food in America by far. Yes. So let's talk about getting your ramen start. What were some of the places you went to? What inspired you to eat ramen? How much ramen were you eating? Yeah, I mean, really the... The first time I ever ate in a ramen shop, it was fueled by Jonathan Gold's eponymous book, Counterintelligence. And that was – I was a weekend warrior for that book. And he wrote about um, a ramen shop on one of his weekly – he was writing for the LA Weekly at the time, and it was Santuka, which is one of the very first chains that came over from Japan, I later found out. And it was nestled in a food court at Mitsua Grocery Store, which is – a magical place for me, um, right on Venice and Sentinella. So it was right down the street from where I lived. I didn't have to go all the way downtown. And I walked in literally at 1101, and there was a line all the way out the grocery store. I had no idea. I was like, what's going on? Are they, like, taping or filming something? Nope. Just a lot of people in line for a bowl of ramen. And I stood there for an hour and a half, and, you know, the anticipation yeah. builds. And finally you sit down mano y mano with this bowl of ramen, and I guess the rest is history. Yeah. <laughs> and let's talk more about, like, Los Angeles. Like, you've got downtown. you got little Japan, Tokyo town down there, and then you've mm-hmm. got Torrance. And Sawtell. And, and then Sawtell. So we've got yeah. these three neighborhoods. I wanted to ask you about Sawtell. Uh, or just in general, do you have a favorite couple spots in L.A. that you can recommend? Oh, yeah, I absolutely do. I mean, I, I, I was thinking about this the other day, just kind of why I think eating ramen in Los Angeles for the first time was, was really the perfect place to do that. You know, anyone that's ever lived in Los Angeles or spent any time there, whether you worked in the entertainment industry or not, you know that the city is literally built on the fabric of dreams. Everything, everybody has a dream, right? Um And so there's this kind of – everyone's always looking for magic. Like when's it going to happen? How's it going to happen? And so when I ate that bowl of ramen, it was like you get that emotional reaction. And it just kind of felt like that to me. It felt like this belongs here because this made me feel like that. So the journey started on Sautel. Um, right down from Santuca is where Sautel is. So Sautel is a street that is parallel to the 405, just west of the 405. And I love that street. I mean, that's that's my ground zero. I go back there. The second I land, I go to Suhita. 
And they now have three different um, restaurants within kind of kitty corner from each other, different styles. But their tonkatsu is is really like one of my ground zeros. It's incredible. I love that. I also shout out Kiriko as well, the sushi bar, which, yes. which is not wrong. Across ramen. the street, cash only. Cash only, <laughs> best sushi bar in LA, I think. But but Sotel is, a, is kind of hallowed ground for ramen hunters. But you didn't live in Los Angeles when you started making ramen no. in a big way. You moved to Nashville. Yeah. Um, and it, you write about it. It was not an easy move for you. You had a career in in Los Angeles, but because of the downturn and some other items, yeah. you moved back home. You're from the area. Yeah. So let's take let's take us to 2010. Yeah. And there's a tweet that happened, and the tweet mm-hmm. changed your life. Let's talk about the tweet. So I was a couple months into this crazy project. My house smelled like gym socks. My husband and my child were furious at me at this point because our house was literally steamy and smelled like the inside of a gym bag all the time. And But I needed feedback in order to progress. And so I was trying to meet chefs and get, you know, people that understood how to make food. You were just casually making ramen at home. Exactly. I see. Literally. In giant vats. How were you, uh, what were you following? Were you following websites? Were you following cookbooks? Were you just doing it on your own? The only thing that I could find were competitive videos, Japanese ramen videos. And some people had given them to me in like DVD form that had come from Japan. Other people had brought me some of those crazy ramen catalogs. And these were literally the only things I had to go on. So the other thing was just pelting chefs with questions. Like even though they didn't really know how to make a ramen broth, I just took what I saw and kept trying. So this one chef named Eric Anderson, who at the time was on the helm of the catbird seat, you know, coming from fine dining. And to me, I mean, he was a god. And so my friend um, happened to be dating him and said, oh, he loves ramen. He wants to come over. I cannot tell you how nervous I was. I can remember my knee literally knocking under the table. No joke. I mean, he was like a best new chef at that time. Oh, yeah. Eric's a great guy. And he definitely came from a crazy background, Noma and all those places. Yeah. You're cooking for this chef. And we, I mean, actually, ironically, we had mutual friends from the music industry because he used to be in the music business before he came in. So that kind of uh, evened it out a little bit. But he he got halfway through this bowl. And I'm sure if I could go back in time now, I would I would never eat that bowl again, right? I would never want to eat that bowl, nor would I want him to eat that bowl. But he saw something and he tasted something and he said, hey, do you mind if I tweet about this from the catbird seat? <laughs> and I was like, uh, OK. From the account of the catbird Literally. seat, which is one of the top restaurants in America. Yeah. And and I don't <laughs> think that I truly understood what he was doing. And I, I do remember this little maniacal laugh that he let out right before he like hit tweet, you know. And it literally pushed me out of the nest. Like I went from underground to above ground in three seconds. And after that, did you then start selling at the farmer's market? Was that that after was the tweet? literally before I served my first bowl to the public? Oh wow! So I think that happened on like August nineteenth was the day, uh-huh. and then September twenty ninth was my very first ramen pop up. Okay, so yeah. it was a pop up. So then, fast forward a little bit, you establish your your style through pop ups, right? And pop Nashville. Yeah. And then you open Otaku South, which then went transformed into a full-fledged ramen shop, Otaku Ramen. Yeah. And your how long have you been running Otaku? So I started Otaku South in 2013. 
And we opened in 2015, December of 2015, as the ramen shop Otaku Ramen. So it'll be three years in December. I, I have to say, I've, I've had your ramen several times in Nashville. I, I, it is like the, some of the best in the country. I mean, it's, it's delicious. It's an, it's an unusual tonkatsu. I think people, I love getting the response. Like, you know, when I see people in the ramen industry that come and they try it, they usually don't want to let you know that they're coming, right? Because if they don't like it, they don't want you to know. But it, it's the, the response, my favorite response is I had no expectations for this bowl and I loved it. Why focus on tokatsu on, on really this porky broth and not like a shio or shoyu or even a spicy, spicy miso? Like, why make this your specialty? What? Well, first of all, ironically, you know, Los Angeles is a tokatsu town. You wouldn't think that it would be, but it really is. So that was kind of what I was reared on, basically. And, and also, it, I, it was driven by the fact that I lived in a place that loved the pig. And there were beautiful pig farms around me. And I felt, wow, this makes sense to make this here. And it, it, it makes sense, too, because... You know, one of my absolute favorite um, barbecue shops and, and restaurants in the whole city is right down the street from us, Peg Leg Porker. And we share a lot of customers. So I think that people feel the same way about ramen as they feel about barbecue. And when you're buying bones, I think there's a misperception that you're, like, using scraps. Like, you're actually buying, like, legitimate bones for the purpose of making this stock, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, the two things that are important to know about a tonkatsu stock, meat is not the important part. What's important is marrow and collagen. That is what makes up the stock itself. So the whiteness that you see, that's literally coming from the marrow and the calcium that's being leached out of the bone. So it's... It is a it's a difficult broth to make because it's specific, but it's just bones and water. So it's like someone said to me once, uh, this woman who made the most unbelievable hot water cornbread, which is literally three things, right? Lard, water, and cornmeal. And I said, how do you do it? She said, it's simple, but it's not easy. Exactly. It, it's actually much more difficult when you have three ingredients, you have to make something beautiful because as we've all had with terrible ramen mm -hmm. stocks, like if you don't have the right ratios, it's just not going to taste like ramen. Yeah. And let's that kind of segues to the idea of making ramen at home, because I think as we've discussed, it, there is a lot of labor and it's very involved, mm -hmm. like making ramen in a restaurant setting. But that said, you can make it at home and you can make ramen that tastes very good at home. That is kind of one of the promises of this book, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and I give you two ways to do it. If you're the kind of person that really loves standing over a stock for 12, 18, 24 hours, you can do that. But you can also use a pressure cooker. And there's positive and negatives to both. But, you know, on a on a day-to-day -day basis, most people don't have time to stand over a stove for 18 hours. So I feel like the pressure cooker, actually, it was Eric that said it to me first. Like, why don't you do this in a pressure cooker? And then another fine dining chef said it to me. And I thought, well, I've never seen ramen chefs do that. That can't that can't be right. And sure as hell, it is right. And it, it was mind-blowing to me because it is about, you know, the tonkatsu stock is about emulsification. That's the number one thing to know about that. And the the pressure cooker speeds up the time, but it also makes emulsification mm -hmm. much easier mm -hmm. simply because of pressure mimics heat in this case. And a home stove can only do so much. So tonkatsu, you can't really push the bones as far as you need to without it. 
we've uh, established the, the the stock, which is fundamental, but there's other elements in the, the bowl of ramen mm-hmm. that you're making at home. Tell us a little bit about the different elements that you break down in the book. Yeah. So, you know, traditionally, if you m- make soup, you're going to probably season the whole batch, right? And then put it back in your fridge and eat it later. You have to completely get rid of that notion. First of all, it's bones and water in the stock. But the seasoning is going to come from what's called the tare, which is a very, in my eyes, the hardest part about making ramen. And that was the hardest part about writing this book was, was being able to create a tare that had the amount of umami and complexity that a good bowl of ramen deserves. But if you can imagine trying to, um, create something that has such a high salinity. It's very, very dense. So it's it's like one tablespoon of um, tare to four cups of broth. So you can season each bowl individually, and that's how we do. Mm-hmm. What Just break down how you make tare, or can you buy tare? You, you really can't yeah, buy tare. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, if you go and you... You buy Sun Noodle if you're lucky enough to have that yeah. distributed. They have a really nice tare pack in there that is a killer. It's cheater. so good. You can buy it at Whole Foods. You yeah. can buy it in most stores. It is so fun. And you can modify that. But really, it's the base of it is going to be some type of soy um, and – or you're starting from the stock itself, and then you're going to fortify that stock, and you're just going to add salt and different umami properties to it. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, there were so many different avenues that we could have taken, but it was important to me to, even though some of these ingredients are difficult to find, they are the key pieces to making these. Uh, let's go back to Sun Noodle because I think you yeah. bring up a good point. The noodles in the ramen, mm-hmm. you know, you can make your own noodles, of course, but as you document in the book and it has been well documented in food writing, Sun Noodles, they like do a really good job, right? Yeah, I, you know, I, I applaud anyone that wants to make ramen noodles on their own. And that's probably another book altogether. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But for me, um, my relationship with Sun Noodle allowed me to focus on all the other parts of making ramen and getting it right. So I, I am forever grateful to my relationship with them. And they, they play a really big role in the ramen industry in America. Oh, for sure. And when you are opening a ramen shop, you kind of get to pick your own noodle, right? With them, you, you, you engineer noodle. Tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, it's it's really fun. So you send your stock to them and you give them an example of kind of what you're looking for. You just like freeze it and send it to them? Yeah. So say that I'm looking for a noodle for my shoyu and I'm doing a what's called a Tokyo style shoyu. So the the typical uh, would be kind of a yellowish noodle that's a little bit wavy that, you know, probably visually represents what you might know in an instant ramen, right? But there's a hundred different directions that that noodle could go. So do you want it to have a little bit more bite? Do you want it to be a softer noodle? Do you want it to be shorter or longer? Um, So these are all the different things that they're capable of doing and making these small changes. So it's, you know, wherever you live, your water is different, kind of like why New York pizza is so good. Yeah. And the noodle responds differently to different waters. So that's the main reason that we go for a customized noodle is to ensure that every time we cook it, it cooks the right way. Did you try different styles? Like, were you always yeah. like experimenting? And are you still in contact with them currently as while you're uh, running your shop? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Kinshiro, who um, is – the founding member or the founding and owner's son and also the VP and kind of – The whisperer. And the whisperer and honestly one of the most incredible men I've ever met. I adore him and I wouldn't be here without him. 
he's just so open and sharing about everything. I can call him with any problem and he's like, okay, here's the person you need. Even if it's a competitor, he's incredible. And that that openness, I think, is what has, you know, it made them who they are in the industry. And they're always, you know, looking to improve and improving like we are. So it almost feels like it, it. they don't hold themselves on a pedestal. And that, to me, makes them so valuable. I mean, when I first started doing this, I didn't – all I saw was the name Sun Noodle at Suhita, and I remembered it on the crate. And I thought, okay, I've got to call them. And I called them and literally knew nothing, like nothing. And he calls me back and tells me what I need and – Ten days later, I have uh, 500 noodles on my front doorstep for free. They FedExed me all the noodles for my first pop-up. And, I mean, that says everything. Yeah, I, I, his, he's legendary in the industry for sure. I wanted to talk about your ramen festival because mm-hmm. it was really smart and really cool that you were doing this when you were just starting out before even the shops were open, right? You were inviting guys like Ivan Orkin from New York and a bunch of dudes from Japan to to, to head, head out to Nashville – and, and cook some ramen. Yeah. How did that start and what was that like? Well, there was this time when I was doing the pop-ups that, you know, Nashville was just literally starting to bubble and people were really, really hungry, literally and figuratively for anything new, which is one of the secrets to the success of, of this whole project. Um, and people would call me and say, hey, I have a restaurant. Do you want to come do this here? And this guy called me and he said, hey, I own Marathon Music Works, which is a you know a venue with 1,500-person capacity. And my buddy over here um, owns a rock catering company, and he has a whole warehouse full of equipment. You want to do an event? <laughs> I was like, uh, yeah. I had no idea what I was in for. But It was amazing. I mean, these guys literally show up with like, you know, big hard cases full of kitchen equipment. And so we just said, well, hell, let's do it. Who did you invite? Who was on the roster of some of these festivals? Yeah. So um, the first year um, it was, well, let's see, really the second year was when it really kicked into gear. So it was Yuji Haraguchi from Yuji Ramen. uh, Shigatoshi Nakamura, who used to be with Sun Noodle and now has Nakamura here in New York. Ivan and um, – oh, gosh. Who else was that year? Well, those three guys were all supposed to come down here and then this nice crazy blizzard happened. And then they drove, which was the mo- – I mean literally Kinshiro called me. He goes, we're driving. <laughs> Through and the um, Nashville. it was insane. I mean we sold 1,000 bowls of ramen in four hours. Amazing, and and then the next year we sold two thousand bowls of ramen. So you knew with this like this rabid fandom for ramen that you had an opportunity to do some ramen in Nashville. Yeah, and I mean it was it was an easy target. All the chefs wanted to come, and all the people wanted to eat it. And so people were starting to travel from Atlanta and coming from different places. And I mean, selfishly for me, I had all these people in my kitchen. It was heaven. What I love about the book too is it's not just recipes. You give a lot of tips on where to eat ramen around the country. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the your favorite bowls that mm. aren't in like New York and LA. We've touched on those cities, but let's let's like move. You you travel all over the country. Mm. What do you like right now? Oh, my gosh. Let's see. You know, it's it's funny. I haven't really had the experience to eat ramen in cities other than, you know, Los Angeles, New York, and Chicago. And that's part of what got me really excited about writing this book is hoping that a lot of young cooks and chefs that are out there that are 
thinking about doing what I did, hopefully this is a gateway for that. Mm-hmm. And I think that some of you know some of the places that I really want to go that I haven't been yet, um, Johnny Noodle King in Detroit, they look like they're just doing incredible things. Um, the the ramen scene in um, San Francisco is really growing a lot as well. And, you know, a lot of gaijin like myself, not just Asians <laughs> making ramen. The ramen shop, they do it on oh, a yeah. whole other level, um, really bringing kind of their fine dining skills to the I got a shout out Atani Ramen in Oakland as well. Yes. They're really good stuff there too. Yes. So, I, you know, I've been nose down making ramen for the last five years. So I'm looking forward to getting out there and eating it more. So with this book in the in the can, what's number two? You got to have a number two. Mm. I ask I ask everyone on the on the podcast, what's your dream? Yeah, book? I I hope to write a book about koji shio. I oh, it's yeah. it's an ingredient that um, has become a, a mainstay and a staple for me. And um, with my other restaurant, Little Octopus, we use it a lot and do a lot of fermentation based on koji. Because koji, that people associate with with chicken and fried chicken, which is nice. But you've you've written about it before. What are some other uses for koji in cooking? Yeah, so koji shio, which is basically, you know, the the rice that's been inoculated and then hydrated and have, you know, about 13 to 18 percent salt level is added to that. And then it ferments. So it looks like rice pudding in a way, but it brings this incredible round umami. The combination between the sugar and the salt um, creates something that breaks down proteins that you can use in raw form or you can use as a marinade. It's pretty special. Oh, man. I love cooking with it when I can find it or when I have it in my – You got to make it. I know. You got to make it or – I think you sent me some, didn't you? Yeah. I'm yeah. going to teach you how to make it. I know. We, I need that book. I've, I've, I've experimented it, but I need that book. Sarah Gavigan, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis, studio recordings by Pat Stango, theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening. Listening.